Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. I want to welcome you to uh, River of Life Alliance Church. Glad that you're here to make much of Jesus uh, with us this morning, and uh, we're really glad uh, that you're here. Uh, I do want to kick off this sermon with a bit of a disclaimer. Um, if I jump off stage and start running through the aisle screaming like a girl, it's not because there was a huge spider on this pulpit. It's because my wife is 37 weeks pregnant, and she's probably gone into labor. Just want to be clear, I'm not scared of spiders. Just want to, yes, I am. You, I, I have to tell the truth. I hate spiders. Um, Anyway, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Psalm 2. Uh, we're going to continue our teaching series in the book of Psalms this morning. One of the things that I think is true about our culture is that we like the idea of a king. We like the idea of a king, but we hate the reality of a king. Like, we like the, in theory, the concept of a king sounds nice. Yeah, I I could get behind that. I like that. But when it comes to reality and we actually have a king, ah, not so much. Uh, We do. We, we, our culture, you can see, we like the idea of a king. It's in our entertainment. It's in our pop culture. It's in our language. Uh, Consider these movies uh, that not only have the king in the title, but are about a king. The king's speech. The King and I, The Lion King, King Arthur. There's a new show that just cleaned up at the the Golden Globes called The Crown, right? All of these shows show that we are enamored with this idea of a king. Uh, We heap praise and compliments on people like LeBron James and Elvis Presley by giving them the nickname The King, right? We even, uh, there's, there's a, uh, it's in our language. Like if somebody excels at something in, in, or like a particular subject, field, game maybe, or trivia kind of a thing, like, and they stump everyone and they prove their, uh, how good they are at that particular thing, don't, uh, maybe I'm the only one, but uh, oftentimes I'll hear this phrase, oh, that's why they are the king. That's why they are the king because they excel at what they do. It's in our language. It's in our pop culture. It's entertainment. We like the idea of a king. But underneath it all, underneath our uh, uh, liking of a king, I think deep down we like the idea of a king because in reality we were actually created for one. We like the idea of a king because we were actually created for one. But along with that, We hate the reality of a king, right? We hate the reality of a king. We are Americans after all. Our country was founded by overthrowing and rejecting a rule and reign of a king. And if you survey history, there's good merit to have some skepticism towards kingships. Because if you were to survey history, I could probably make the case that there are far more wicked kings than there are good kings. So there's some merit behind this. But... I think at the end of the day, if you were to poke and prod and get behind the human soul and figure out what makes them tick, deep down, we as the human race, we don't like the reality of a king 
because we don't like the thought of someone having that kind of complete ruling control over our lives. We don't like someone having the complete ruling control over our lives, and so we hate the reality of a king. We like the idea of a king, but we hate the reality of one. And we're going to see this in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 will confirm both of these statements. So if you hopefully have your Bibles and have found Psalm 2, I'm going to go ahead and read this psalm for us this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, if you were here last week, we kicked off this series in the Psalms, and we talked about Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is centered around the individual and where the individual will go. What path will the individual take? And there's two paths that are offered, the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. One of those paths will lead to destruction and perishing. The other path will lead to blessedness. Now, Psalm 2 kind of follows a similar format, but changes the context a little bit. Rather than being about the individual, Psalm 2 is centered around all of mankind. And it's asking the question, where is all of history going to go? And again, two paths are offered, with the king or against the king. One of those paths will lead to blessedness. The other one will lead to destruction and perishing. The first three verses give us a context for Psalm 2. And they kind of all ask the same question. They ask this question. Why does mankind rebel against God? Why is it that mankind rebels and forms a rebellion against God? Verse 3 actually gives us a clue as to why this rebellion started. It says this, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The imagery that's being communicated here is one of ownership. Ownership. It's one of bondage. It's actually one of slavery. And so what mankind has done is we reject and buck and, and rebel against this idea that God has that kind of ownership over us. And we think, no, 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 no. If I want to achieve true freedom, then I need to break free from God's ownership, undo the shackles. And if I want personal autonomy, that's, what's, that's, that's where true freedom really lies, to have 
control of my own life, to be the master of my own fate, to be the king of my life. Personal autonomy, that's where true freedom is found. And this is essentially what humanity has done. But the reality is, and the New Testament confirms this over and over and over again, and it's an ironic statement, but this is, this is the truth of what the New Testament confirms, that if you really want true freedom, make yourself a slave to God. If you really want true freedom, make yourself a slave to God. This principle actually works in our real world. You, uh, let me give you an example. If I make myself a slave of playing an instrument like the piano, and I practice it, and I learn it, and I spend lots and lots and lots of time figuring out how to play the piano, I'm making myself a slave to the piano. If I do that, then eventually I'm going to start getting really good. Eventually I'm going to start excelling at playing the piano until guess what will finally happen? I will eventually arrive at a place where I will have the freedom to play whatever it is I want. You see how the concept works? But when it comes to God, no, 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 all bets are off. We as the human race, we reject this idea. If God is king over my life, then that means he has the right to tell me how I should live. And I reject that idea, not only because I want personal freedom, I want to be the king of my own life, but God's way is boring. God's way is miserable. God's way is joyless. God's way is crushing. God is just trying to suck all the fun out of life. That is the lie we have convinced ourselves of. And so we reject this idea of God owning us. It's the same lie that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. It's this idea that if you submit to God, that you are going to miss out on something in life. That God is really holding out on you. And if you submit to his way, you're going to miss out on what you really want. That's the lie that Adam and Eve have believed, and that's the lie that you and I also believe. It's this idea, it, it gets put in different language for our culture today, but it's this idea of no one has the right to tell me how to live. No one. No one owns me. No one controls me. No one has the right to come into my life and tell me how to live. And if God claims that right and that authority, then not only do I reject it, but it's good and true and right that I should reject it. Because personal autonomy, being the king and master of my own fate, is really much more important than God ruling my life. It's much more valuable. It's much better. It's like we've all convinced ourselves somehow, at least I know for me, that we, we've convinced ourselves that God's kingdom is a lot like the evil empire from Star Wars, right? And we are Han Solo. And it's like, we want to be Solo. We want to do whatever we want. We want to live however we want. And so we reject and rebel. We join the rebellion against God and his evil empire. That's how twisting sin can become over our minds. We project ourselves that way against God. But no, the opposite is true. Now, some of you might want to argue this idea, which is fine. You can, that's fine. You can do that. Um, some of you might want to argue this idea and say, John, this language seems kind of too strong, right? If I were to go around into the world and into our country and I were to poll a bunch of people and ask them, hey, do you believe in God? I bet we would get a lot of yeses, right? 
this idea that people are straight up rebelling against God, making war against God, that seems kind of strong. The language there seems kind of strong. I don't think that is the reality. There's a lot of people who believe in God. They're not rebelling against him. And on the surface, I wouldn't dispute that. I think if we were to go into this country and into this valley and into the world, really, and start polling people and ask the question, hey, do you believe in God? I bet we would get a lot of yeses. However, I think if I were to go to those same people and I were to pick up the Bible and I were to read Psalm 2 and I were to ask them the question, do you believe in that God? I'm not so sure I'd get as many yeses. In fact, I think we'd get a lot more people saying, no way do I believe in that God. In fact, I might even get a few Christians that sort of, you know, all embarrassed-like, ducking their head, "Ah, I, I guess I believe in that God, right? See, it's not just that we rebel against the concept of God. We rebel against the God of the Bible. The concept of God allows you to fashion a God in your own image. It allows me to go to a factory and make a God to my choosing and my liking. But the God of the Bible, if we're honest with this book, let's just be honest with this book. If we were to read this book, and this book is from God, about God, and we were to come across certain places in the scripture that describe this God, there's some places, honestly, that should just make us cringe. Ah, right? And one of those places is this idea that God claims complete ownership over you. And since the garden, all of history has been mankind trying to reject God's ownership, rebel against it, and form their own self-ownership. In other words, you could sum up all of history as one gigantic rebellion against the God of the universe. We've all rejected the king of kings, the king of the universe, for our own king. And that king's name is me, myself, and I. Sin is ultimately saying, I'm going to rebel against God's kingship and make myself the king of my own life. That's ultimately what sin is. So, how does God respond? The text tells us in verse 4, I love this. How does God respond to the rebellion of mankind? He laughs. (laughs) He laughs, right? Confession time uh, for me. I, a time or two, okay, a lot of times, uh, have laughed when my kid is disobeying what I'm telling them to do, right? Don't judge parents. I know you've done it too. I have laughed a time or two when my kid is disobeying me. Let me set the scene for you, right? I'll, I'll go in and I will tell my child, hey, you need to pick up your toys off the floor and take them to your room. How does my child respond, right? Throws themselves on the floor, throws a huge temper tantrum, gives me excuse after excuse after excuse of why they can't do what I just asked them to do as if what I just asked them to do was like climbing Mount Everest, right? And how do I respond? Many times I have to put my hand over my mouth and I'm just like, (laughs) like, because what they're doing is so ridiculous, right? It's like, kid, you are three foot nothing. You just learned potty training last year. You can't even pronounce the word spaghetti right, right? 
everything you own is from me and your mom, but why don't you go ahead and tell me why your way is so much better than my way, right? We can't trust you with scissors or bubble gum, but yeah, why don't you tell us why you're the king of this house? Did I cast an accurate picture, parents? And yet, how often do we do the same thing with God? We do the same thing with God. Right? God tells us what to do, how to live our lives. God tells us he is the king over our lives. And how do we react? We throw our own temper tantrums. We give God excuse after excuse after excuse of why we're not going to live the way that he wants, why he shouldn't be king in our lives, why our way is better, and that we should be the king of our own lives. And how does God respond? Like any good parent, he just laughs. Right? All right, kid. I created you. I created everything that you see and know, but go ahead. Tell me why you deserve to be the master and Lord and king in your life. And again, make no mistake, God isn't laughing because you're funny and we're funny when we rebel against him. God is laughing because rebellion against him is just plain ridiculousness. It's futile. It's ridiculous to rebel against the God of the universe. You can't be the owner of your life because somebody has already claimed ownership over you, the one who has created you. You can't claim to be the king of your own life because there's already a king in your life. So let's meet this king. Who is this king? God says in verse 6, I have set my king in Zion. Who is this king? Right? We have to do a little bit of a Bible study and ask this question. Who is this king? In the immediate context, when Psalm 2 was actually written, it's referring to David. And in fact, the New Testament will confirm that David actually wrote this psalm. It's referring to David, but it's also referring to all of the kings that would come after David, all of the the kings in David's line, all of his descendants, his dynasty, whoever would assume the throne in Israel, Psalm 2 applies to And you see this in the two titles that are given. The first title is this, the anointed one. The anointed one. That word anointed has a twofold meaning. On on the one hand, it means that the king was set apart by God to be king. That this particular person was set apart by God to be king. That's the first part of what anointed means. The second part of what anointed means is that this king was actually empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be the king, to rule in Israel, to exercise ruling in Israel. So we have a twofold meaning, right? To be set apart, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But underneath that that is a deeper meaning because the word anointed actually means Messiah in Hebrew. It's where in the Greek it gets translated to Christ or the Christ. It's where we get our word Christ from. And so in other words, what this meant was that All of the fortunes, all of the people's goodness, all of the fates of the people in Israel were tied up or linked to the king in Israel, right? And you see this confirmed in history because as the king of Israel goes, so go the people. You see that play out in the scriptures and it doesn't go very well for many of the kings, The second title is son. 
This meant that the, the king and God were in a very close relationship, but it also meant that the king reigned and ruled on behalf of God, that they executed God's will, that literally heaven's will was being executed through their reign and rule on planet earth through the nation of Israel. And again, if the king ruled this way, if they actually did God's bidding, if they actually followed God's will, then all of Israel stood to benefit. But a problem comes up. A problem arises in the text. Because David and the kings don't live up to the expectations of the anointed one and the son. They don't live up to him. And and in fact, if you actually read Psalm 2, some of the language that gets described for the king in terms of his authority and the promises that are guaranteed, those things never happen in David's line or in David's life. And so Israel quickly begins to look for a king. They begin to look for a king. They begin to look for someone in the line of David who would be the anointed one, who would be the true son. Somebody that they could throw all of their fortune and fate and goodness on and trust their future to. And someone who would do God's bidding on earth, who would literally bring heaven to earth by doing God's will on earth. Then comes along a 30-year-old Jewish rabbi carpenter named Jesus, hundreds of years later after the kings reigned in Israel. And this Jesus, this carpenter rabbi who's just 30 years old, not only claims the titles for himself, but he actually raises the expectations of what anyone thought those roles were. He actually raises the bar and blows away what anyone thought the anointed one and son of God would be. See, Jesus is the true anointed one, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. He's the anointed one of the whole world because all of our fates as the human race, all of our fates, all of our, any goodness that we would hope to have, our future, our fortunes, they're all tied up in Jesus. And you see this throughout Jesus' life. He is, he is set apart as the king of the universe at his birth. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit who flies down in the form of a dove at his baptism. And it's at his resurrection that Jesus actually confirms to the human race, I am the true Christ because I have beaten death. All of your fates are tied, now linked and tied to mine. He's the true Christ. He is the Messiah. Jesus is also the true son of God, not just because he has a close relationship with God, although that's true, and not just because he does God's bidding on earth, although that's true, but because, God, because Jesus literally is God. He's, he's literally God come from heaven. He knows heaven's will better than anyone because he came from there. He is the son of God. He has a closer relationship with God than any of us because he is God. He's part of the Trinity. And because he does heaven's bidding on earth, all of us stand to benefit. In the immediate context, Psalm 2 is talking about David and the kings that would come after him. But as you read the scriptures in its entirety, and as you understand the whole scope of history, the truest sense of who this king is, is Jesus. And just so you think I didn't come to that conclusion randomly or on my own, the New Testament confirms this over and over and over again. 
Not only Jesus himself, but the writers of the New Testament. And I don't even have time to discuss all of the times Psalm 2 actually gets quoted in the New Testament. It's a lot. But let me give uh, you one. Actually, this one doesn't, well, it alludes to Psalm 2. It doesn't directly quote. But it confirms that the New Testament writers considered Jesus to be both the Son of God and the true Christ, the true anointed one. This is out of Romans chapter 1. Paul kicks off his letter this way. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's going to go on to explain what the gospel is. The gospel is something that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, there's our word anointed, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. So there you have it. The New Testament confirms it and sums all of that up. Now, why do I bring this up? Why, why do this Bible study on this text? I bring this up because even though all of us want to, in some degree or another, be the king of our own lives, we're also simultaneously searching for a king. We're searching for someone that we can place our hopes into, that we can place our future into, that all of the goodness and fortune coming our way, our entire lives, we want to place into that king and his kingship. We're simultaneously, just like Israel, looking for a king. And church, I have news for you. There is a king. There is a king. There is a king who is everything you are looking for. There's a king who is everything you're looking for. His name is Jesus. This upcoming Friday is the inauguration day uh, for President-elect Donald Trump. And as I was uh, crafting this message, I couldn't help but place Psalm 2 as kind of in the backdrop of what's going to take place on Friday at the inauguration. And the reason I couldn't help but do that is because Psalm 2 is actually a coronation psalm. So when a new king in Israel was crowned, a new king assumed the throne, Psalm 2 was often read at that coronation. It's kind of the ancient day equivalent of an inauguration. I don't know if Psalm 2 will be read this Friday. I don't know if they'll read Psalm 2. But here is one thing that I can guarantee you, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump. There hasn't and never will be the king you are looking for and so desperately need on Capitol Hill. Our king is in heaven right now. And all of history is lining up for one day in which this king will come back to a different hill, a hill in Zion. And this king will not just rule Israel or America from that hill. This king will rule the world. And there is nothing. There is no monarch. There is no ruler. There is no dictator. There is no king. There is no president that can change and thwart that plan. This is our anointed one. This is our son of God. This is King Jesus. Tim Keller in one of his sermons says this. Democracy is medicine, not food. You can't live on medicine. 
We have to have democracy because human beings are so sinful that none of us are fit to rule. But we need a king. We were built for a king. That king is Jesus, not the person who happens to live in the White House. But I have a question for you. I have a question for us this morning. I have a lot of questions for us this morning, but I have another one. Are we okay with this king? Are we? Are we okay with this king? If we're honest, when we read Psalm 2, are we okay with the way in which this king rules? Because if you're honest with the text and you read it, this king decrees some stuff with authority that should make you squirm in your seat, that should make you uncomfortable, that should bother you. And you see a bit of this in his, at the end of his decree in verse 9, the king decrees this, that he will break the peoples of the earth with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. Whoa. Twice this psalm will actually refer to the wrath of God in the rule and reign of the king. Time out. Wrath? Do we still believe in that in the 21st century? Do we, do we still believe in the wrath of God? Like, are we okay with the wrath of God? Do, do, do we uh, run to to read about the wrath of God every morning. Is the wrath of God something that we're like, oh yeah, yeah, we gotta think about the wrath of God today. We gotta consider the wrath of God today. Or are we trying to get rid of the wrath of God? Are we trying to explain it away? Are we trying to put it down on the bottom shelf and let it collect dust? We don't like the wrath of God. Even us as Christians, we don't like the wrath of God. And I'll admit, there are times where I struggle And I wrestle with this idea of God's wrath. I wrestle with it. It's hard. It's hard to deal with. Because we in the Western world, and I'm a product of the Western world, most of us in this room are, we in the Western world, we don't like this idea of wrath. We don't like to think of God in this intense anger, executing judgment on the nations. We like to think of God as all accepting, all loving, and embracing everyone with a hug. That's, that's the God that the 21st century Western world has created. Or to put it another way, we like hippie Jesus, right? We like hippie Jesus throwing out cliff bars full of the Holy Spirit, giving us wisdom as we climb the 14er of life, right? That's, that's our Jesus. That's our King Jesus. We don't like the Bible's picture of King Jesus, This king who has a tattoo down the side of his leg. This king whose sword comes out of his mouth and he starts tearing up the nations. And he's treading over them in his horse and he covers himself in blood and he treads over the people like you would a wine press and birds come and they eat what's left over. And if you think I made up how grotesque that is, go read Revelation 19. It's in there. See, the problem is we in the Western world, we've separated some ideas. We can't come to grips with love and wrath existing in the same world and in the same person. We think love and wrath have to be separated, that they can't go together in a person. But I would argue this morning that they can. 
Let me show you. Isn't it it precisely because I love someone or something that when that thing is threatened or when that person is threatened and put into harm's way, don't I respond in anger, in hate, in wrath because I love that thing or that person? Again, isn't it precisely because I love someone or something that when it's threatened, it's good and right for me to respond in anger, in hate, in wrath, because what I love is being threatened. Let me show you some examples from the real world. I love babies, and I love everyone having the right to live. It's Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? I love life. Therefore, I hate things that take away life, abortion being one of them. I respond in anger. I respond in wrath towards that because it threatens what I love. I love peace. I love peace. I love people being able to not kill each other, right? So when I turn on the news and I see rescuers pulling little boys and little girls from piles of rubble in Syria... It makes me hate war. It angers me against war. I love when men act like men. I love when men act like men and not abuse their wives and abuse their kids and go around with smug arrogance and try to justify what they're doing. When I see that, it makes me wish I was 250 pounds and an MMA fighter, right? Because I'd probably do some things. But I'm, there's also something at work. I'm able to restrain that anger. I'm able to restrain that hatred and that wrath. Why? Not because I believe in an all-accepting God, but precisely because I believe in a God of wrath, a God who is going to come back and do something about the things that I see in this world. If Jesus is wrathful towards sin, it means that he loves his creation because what threatens to destroy what he loves, he responds to in wrath because he loves. And make no mistake, what threatens to destroy his creation is us. One day, King Jesus is coming back and he will set everything right and he will undo all wrongs and he will make evil give an account and he will judge all peoples. And that is a good thing. Do you know why? Because it means I don't have to be the judge. I don't have to respond in wrath and in anger and in hate because I trust somebody who will. His name is Jesus. All the random horribleness that I see in this world, one day Jesus will show me that it's not random. And one day he will make all things give an account And he will defeat evil forever. Now we might be tempted to think, well, okay, John, I get that. But this this still seems unfair. There's something in my spirit that just, the scales don't seem balanced here. This seems unfair that God would decree a judgment so harsh like this. But let me point out one of the great ironies of God's judgment. Wrapped up inside God's judgment is God actually giving people what they want. Wrapped up inside God's judgment is God giving people what they 
want. You see this in verse 12. The ESV translated it, he allows people to choose their own path. Essentially, their, their path will end in destruction or in perishing. But I love the way the NIV translates that. The NIV translates verse 12, your way, if you choose your way, it will lead to destruction. I'm giving you the opportunity to choose your own way. It just so happens that what you choose will lead to destruction. When Jesus comes back to rule the earth, I like to think that this is what will happen. He will tell people, you have the right to go on continuing thinking and living as if you have control over your life, that you can do and live and say and be the things that you want. You can do that. You just can't do it on the planet I've created. You can continue to think you are the king of your own life. You just can't do it in my kingdom. And he will banish them. He will separate them from himself. And there you have it. The definition of hell. The irony of God's wrath is that he's giving people what they want. He removes them from his kingdom. Because these people want another king or they want to be their own king. And it's that principle that actually governs hell itself. Can you imagine people without God intervening, sinful people having the choice without restraint to do whatever it is that they want? You will have hell. That is what hell is. It's God removing his hand, separating them from himself and his kingdom and his people and saying, go live how you want. And make no mistake, everyone in hell lives for themselves. There is no unity in hell. There's nothing but selfishness. It's a kingdom centered around me. No one in hell is ever going to admit that God was fair. There won't be a single person in hell that will say, God was so fair to send me here. In fact, they'll admit the complete opposite. They'll say, God was unfair. And underneath that statement, what they're trying to do is justify why they deserve to be king of their lives. Why it's more important for them to have a say over how they live. And they reject God. And so they think God's not being fair with them. Because they think it's more fair for them to be king of their own lives. And that is what will not only keep them in hell, but again, that will create the very dynamics of hell. Because what is truly fair in hell is that everyone gets to be the king of their own lives and rule how they want. C.S. Lewis, he says it way better than me. He says this in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. So the last question I have for us this morning is this. Is there any hope for us? Is there a door worth knocking on? Is there something worth seeking? Can we escape the coming wrath of Jesus and his kingship. And this morning, church, I have unbelievably good news. There is. There is a refuge 
for me and for you that we can seek, that we can find, where we can escape the coming wrath. In the end, there is no refuge from King Jesus. There's no refuge from King Jesus because Jesus owns the whole world. But there is refuge in King Jesus. There is refuge in King Jesus. And the greatest act of history on the cross, God doesn't pour out his wrath and crush humankind. No, the Father and the Son conspire their own plan. And it's in that plan that God, because he loves creation, sends his son to bear the wrath of humanity. And it's the son who willingly goes. He doesn't, no one takes his life. He lays it down on his own. And he says, Father, I will go and bear this wrath because I love humankind too much to lose them. Do you see that this works on the cross. In the Bible, there are two tracks. In the first track, God responds to me in wrath, not because he's wrathful, but because I'm sinful. Wrath is not an eternal quality of God. God did not have wrath in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. God responds to us in wrath because we're sinful, and that's what a holy God should do. But there will be a day where humanity is no longer sinful, and therefore God will no longer be wrathful. The, the, the reverse of this is true. God responds to me in love, not because I'm lovable, but because God is so loving. And on the cross, these two tracks of God's love and God's wrath, they come together and they collide. They collide. And underneath the cross, for you and for me, is created a refuge. A refuge where God himself literally becomes the refuge for us, that we can enjoy God and his love without his wrath consuming us. That is the refuge that is created for you and for me, and God himself created it. And don't fall into the temptation to believe that the Old Testament and New Testament God are different, that the Old Testament God is all wrath and smiting, and the New Testament God is all loving and getting along. These two tracks run together throughout all of Scripture. It is God the Father, God of the Old Testament, who provides sacrifices for mankind to atone for their sin. Why does God provide those sacrifices? Because he loves his people. And the God of the New Testament provides Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice to atone for sin. Why? Because he loves all people and all mankind. Therefore, how do we respond to this king? How do we respond to this king of love and wrath? We do so through loving submission and serving. We do so through loving submission and serving. And as we do, we embrace God as our refuge. A king who has provided such a refuge should overwhelm us with rejoicing where we want to serve him. Christian, if you are not increasing in your joy over what God has provided for you in the refuge of God it will be harder and harder and harder for you to serve him in his kingdom because there will be other things that will distract you, other joys that will replace his joy. We need to increase in our joy. That will increase how much we serve him. Where are you serving God in his kingdom today? Church, this must require much more than us just showing up to this building once a week, singing a bunch of songs, hearing a sermon, and cutting a check. 
But I want to take this in a little bit of a different direction because I think we know that it requires more than that. And so what we do is we play the comparison game. Oh, man, I wish I could be like so-and-so. So-and-so serves way more than me. I wish I could do more. And when we have that, Satan comes in and guilts us. Oh, you should be doing more. You're not doing enough. You should be doing more for God. Guys, God's love for us in creating this refuge shouldn't guilt us into serving him. We should respond in joy and want to serve him. Let's stop playing the comparison game. Let's stop letting Satan guilt us into doing more. Let's just go before the Lord every day with this simple prayer. God, what's one thing I can do today to serve you in your kingdom? What's what's the one thing I can do today to serve you in your kingdom? The second thing is submission. A king who provides such a refuge is worth our complete submission, our loving submission. This is what it means to kiss the sun. When it says to, to kiss the sun, picture uh, somebody bowing before the king and saying, your majesty, and kissing the hand or the crown of the monarch. That's what that means. It means to bow before them and say, you control my whole life. Church, isn't it easy to play games with God in this area too? Isn't it easy to go before God and say, God, I'll be or you can be the king of my life, but when things go badly or you don't give me what I want, I'm out. Right? When we might be quick to go to God and acknowledge him as king, but then we quickly become lobbyists. We lobby to God. God, man, you need to be concerned with my agenda. You need to be concerned with what I want. You need to be concerned with my plan. You need to be concerned with my kingdom. Can I just hitch my kingdom to your kingdom? Right? We play games with God. But true submission yields every area of our lives. And what it looks like is, is once we do this, we actually ask God or we want to see God as king in our lives, king at work. We want to see his kingdom in our lives as we submit to him. So whether it's the small things or the big things, if it's the small things like doing the dishes, going to the grocery store, going to that job you hate, this monotonous work, or whether it's doing the big things, like raising kids, like looking for a spouse, like burying a loved one. All of those moments are an opportunity to say, God, I want to see you at work in my life. I want to see your kingdom. I want you to see, I want to see you as the king in my life. God, I give this over to you. Would you give me eyes to see how much you want to use it for your kingdom? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. church as we submit and as we serve this king as we submit and as we serve this king in doing those actions we actually begin to experience god as a refuge and i don't know about you but the more and more and more i experience god as a refuge the more i want to tell others about what i'm experiencing the more i want to go tell people about this refuge that i have See, God didn't come and give you a refuge so that you could take comfort from him and sit idly on your hands and do nothing. No, God gave you a refuge so that you could be provided with his love, so that you could be filled up and go out and be bold about Jesus. As you submit and as you serve him, you will speak about him. You see this play out in Acts 4. We have a lot to learn from the early church in this area. But Acts chapter 4 says this. 
Acts chapter 4, starting verse 23, says, When they were released, the they here is Peter and John. When they were released, they were released from prison. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. The chief elders and priests had told them, You can no longer speak in Jesus' name. You can no longer tell others about him as a refuge. And when they heard it, Peter, when the friends of Peter and John, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you are king who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You're the king of the universe. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Everyone was against God's anointed. But this was to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was Jesus providing the refuge for us. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak, to speak the word of God, submitting and serving God, they spoke the word of God with boldness. Would you stand this morning? May we sing this song to our king, about our king, that we as the church might leave this place submitting and serving and speaking boldly about what our king has done.